Archbishop Anno II was bent on revenge. The rebellious people of Colonna chased him out of the city shortly after Easter in April 1074 AD. He had been forced to flee like a mouse through a hole in the Cologne city wall. He, one of the most powerful princes of the empire, had been humiliated. The God-ordained order had thus been severely disturbed. Here in the neighboring city of Neuss, north of Cologne, Anno gathered his armies to move back to Cologne. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as kind of a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as this city grows from the Romans up until our present time. What a final episode that was last time. Anno II, Archbishop of Cologne, for a time the most powerful prince in the Holy Roman Empire, had been chased from his residence and the city itself by the angry mob of Cologne. But Anno had escaped, he lived, and in this episode we learn how this story of the 1074 uprising ended. We'll do that right away after the intro. Three days had passed since Anno had left Cologne in flight. Anno had been able to save himself through that very hole on April 23, 1074, which you can still see in the underground car park of Cologne Cathedral, even though it is now bricked up. Since then, Anno stayed in Neuss, a town north of Cologne, which was then part of the domain of the Archbishop of Cologne. Here, over the last three days since his flight, numerous men from the vicinity of Cologne had arrived to come to the aid of their Archbishop. Of course, as before, the yearbooks of the contemporary historian and abbot Lampert of Hersfeld serve us as a written source. But Lampert's um, biased attitude in his reports about the events in April 1074 I had already spoken. If not, better listen to the previous episode again, please. Thus, Lampert reports of the country people summoned to noise that came for Anno's aid after he was uh, chased away out of the city of Cologne. Quote, Thus, they called to arms everywhere within a radius of four or five miles. Many thousands of people flock faster than a word can be heard, and no man capable of bearing arms denies himself such a godly service. They flocked together, entreated the archbishop, and pressed the hesitant man by force to move as quickly as possible against the city in order to recapture it. They would fight for him and willingly suffer death if necessary, sheep for the shepherd, sons for the father. If, on his appearance, the people of Cologne did not immediately receive him and at his direction make satisfaction for the slight, they would hurl in fires and have the inhabitants burned along with the city, or break down the wall and lead him back to his episcopal see over heaps of slain. End quote. Yo, that's what I call commitment, Lampert. Any employer would be happy to have such employees like the 
um, countryside people that lived around Cologne. What I find interesting, and this is my personal opinion, is how Lampert, as always, tries to make his teacher and mentor Anno look good. It is the country people who press Anno, even by force, as Lampert himself testifies, to return to Cologne immediately. As if Anno himself didn't have a motive for no reasons to strike back against the very city that had chased him away three days before. But no sooner said than done, Anno moved indeed back to Cologne on April 26, 1074, four days after his escape with his now handsome army of men. Very well, but Cologne could of course boast of its stately city walls from even Roman times. It would be a long time before Anno had besieged and starved the city. But it did not come to that at all. Let's give the floor to Lampert again to find out what happened when Anno arrived with his army in front of the Cologne city wall. Quote, Thus, on the fourth day after his flight, the archbishop, surrounded by a stately mob, advanced before the city. When the people of Cologne saw this and realized that they could not withstand the attack of such a large, pugnacious crowd, neither at the wall nor in battle, only then did their rage begin to fade. Their drunkenness to wane, and completely intimidated, they sent messengers to meet him and asked for peace, pleading guilty and agreeing to take any punishment upon themselves, provided their lives were spared. The archbishop replied that he would not deny them forgiveness if they sincerely repented. End quote. Did you expect a more dramatic outcome to the uprising of 1074? The city rebels kick the archbishop out of the city as the city lord. Even they try to kill him and after four days it's just like, yeah, cool man, you're back, um, enter the city peacefully, XOXO. I am also a bit disappointed about this twist in the story, to be honest, but that was not all of it. Of course, not everything was love, peace and harmony again. Anno did not enter the city immediately. He lingered with his army of peasants, servants and some knights in front of the southern city wall at St. George, his own church foundation which was just outside the city wall and at that time was not yet within the walled city. That would not happen until 40 years later, in 1106. So, Anno was right outside the city, but could still run away if the situation became more dicey again. And, to be honest, who could blame him? On the same day of his return to Cologne, Anno celebrated the church service in St. George as a sign of goodwill. All those who had rebelled against him now had to come before him dressed only in penitential robes of scratchy wool and barefoot and ask loudly and publicly for forgiveness. I have told you many times, in a time without large mass media, internet or television, still without microphones and loudspeakers, such publicly well-visible ceremonies were the means for the exercise of power and for the representation of the own power. Anno showed here that he was a forgiving church father, in public, a shepherd who led his sheep back into the fold, just like the father took back the son as told in the parable in the bible in the gospel of luke a parable that people were aware of of course it must have been a really strange situation for all the parties 
Anno, who was here to forgive the very people who just four days ago wanted to kill him in a furious rage. Also for the other side certainly unpleasant because the penitents in turn had to go to St. George outside the city, absolutely defenseless against the archbishop and his army, so that they, the penitents, could ask Anno for forgiveness. About the difficult atmosphere between the parties at this act, I would like to go into more detail in a moment, because this scene showed how rule was understood and exercised at that time, an aspect that I would like to treat separately here in this episode later. But if you think that Anno left it with a little walking around barefoot in uncomfortable clothes, as far as the atonement was concerned, you were much, very much mistaken. The rebels probably also suspected this when Anno told them after the service at St. George that they, so the rebels, should go to the square in front of Cologne Cathedral the next day, April 27th, to receive their just punishment in the sense of canon law there, where the rebellion had escalated the days before. So now, during the night, fear was running rampant in Cologne. What would Anno expect from the insurgents, the rebels, so that they had sufficiently repented in his, Anno's eyes? What punishments would the archbishop come up with for them? This probably made many, probably most of the insurgents, reconsider their willingness to repent the next day. The next morning, Anno made his way to Cologne Cathedral. This was the first time he had entered the walled city since his escape. All night long, he had posted loyal followers, mostly knights, in the city to make sure that he would not be threatened with another surprise like on April 23rd. In the meantime, however, Anno had sent the summoned rural population back home. After all, they had fulfilled their purpose to make the Cologne insurgents give up. But when Anno arrived at the cathedral, he really got a new surprise. This time not one that threatened his life, but still made him quite angry. Let's listen to what Lampert had to tell about the events that day, or rather what happened that night before. Quote, That night more than 600 of the wealthiest merchants fled the city and went to the king, that is Henry IV, to back his intervention against the archbishop's rampage. The archbishop, after entering the city, waited three full days for the rest to appear before him as he had ordered, so that they might make proposals for some satisfaction, but they did not come. This disregard the archbishop's men could not bear. They took up arms, as most affirm, without the archbishop's knowledge or consultation, entered the houses, plundered the property, partly struck down those who confronted them, partly captured them, and threw them into chains, practicing, in a word, we must confess through of necessity the truth, the work of just vengeance much more unbridled than was consistent with the reputation of so high a prince of the church. But the more severe the disease, the sharper antidotes it required. End quote. Oh, well, Lampert, it's funny. Lampert's clear partisanship for Anno always delights me. 
The Archbishop's men resort to violence out of frustration, robbing, plundering and murdering, but hey, Arnaud certainly did not know anything about it, mm, of course, and even if he did, according to Lampert, it was okay because, quote, the more severe the disease, the sharper the antidote, and quote, is needed, as Lampert himself said. After all, it was about insurgents who, according to him, were in league with the devil himself. Anno waited a whole three days, as told, for the men who had still gathered in St. George in their penitential robes the day before to go to the cathedral to receive their punishment from him, Anno. But as I said, this did not happen, or as we heard. No one came, or better said, <laughs> they couldn't come because they were already up and gone. Only the merchant's son, whose name is not known to us, who escalated the uprising and became its leader, was punished. He had probably already been imprisoned by Anno before. Surely this had been one of the conditions that Anno would not devastate the city when he came back. The poor young merchant's son was blinded by the executioner on Anno's orders. Some close associates of the merchant's son were also punished. They had probably already been imprisoned as leaders of the uprising when Anno returned to Cologne as well, as the unknown merchant's son has, had been. These young men were all whipped and shorn and, like the young merchant's son, deprived of most of their property. What this means in turn? Well, whipping is a punishment in which a person is tied to a stake and then whipped with sticks, whips, leather straps, or even a broom with metal splinters on it. Oh man, there's truly never a limit to human imagination when it comes to hurting other fellow human beings. Okay, the beating. I can understand uh, in some kind of way. <laughs> I can understand the motives, even though it's not really nice to do to that uh, to to do that to another person. But what was the purpose of shaving the hair of the punished? Nowadays, a bald head is generally accepted and also a sign of coolness like with Vin Diesel, Ben Kingsley or Skylar Grey. At that time, however, the rule was anyone who had a shaved head and wore a bald head was certainly, most certainly, a criminal. What stands out here? All the punishments that Anno imposed, such as blinding, whipping and shaving somebody's head off, and confiscation of property were measures that were extremely painful and degrading. They were so-called honorary punishments or public shaming, as it's, I think, the better term in English. For they did not have death as a consequence, these punishments. Rather, the honor of the punished was to be diminished. And you know what honor meant in these times even more than today, I think who ran around blindly, screamed like a pig in public because he or she was whipped, uh, his or her back was scarred, or his or her hair was cut off by a blunt knife, was physically and psychologically marked for life. I like to repeat myself. Public nonverbal acts such as these were part of the daily uh, display of power and rule in that time. Anna wanted it to be clear not only to those punished here, but to everyone in Cologne and in the entire empire, that one should not question the God-given order. He forgave the rebels, but they in turn had to do something or endure something so that the previously disturbed 
order was back in balance. That was the deal. In itself, as brutal as it sounds, something completely usual in this time. Thus, Anno acted, even if I would never demonize him nor take him into protection, completely in the sense of the legal conception of that time. The archbishop is the city ruler of Cologne. With this act, everyone should now have understood that. Thus, in this way, Anno returned as the city ruler of Cologne. Of course, all the merchants who had fled Cologne in large numbers the night before had also been robbed of their property in the city. He confiscated their property and all their belongings in the city and in, around Cologne as well. If they returned, they would have been threatened with severe punishment, as they had also evaded the jurisdiction of the city ruler after Anno had given them the penance the day before. A church ban for the fugitives was, of course, included. Well, no surprise here. And here it is important to do also serious historical source criticism, because following all that happened here, Lampert wrote about the city of Cologne, quote, Thus the city, not long ago the most populous and after Mainz, the largest of all Gallic cities, suddenly became almost completely deserted where hitherto the streets could scarcely contain the dense throngs of pedestrians, now seldom does a human being show himself and eerie silence reigns in all the places of pleasure and enjoyment. End quote. Cologne was now a city that was completely desolate and abandoned? That, sorry Lampert, will hardly have been even close to the reality especially when you consider that the city would expand extensively in just 40 years after this event. Probably Lampert exaggerated here consciously, in order to clarify in this way the mighty big power of Anno. What advantage, to be honest, would Anno have had in ruling over a city that he would have depopulated? Especially considering that Cologne was not only a city but the most populous in the entire empire. It was not until the 16th century that Nuremberg was to displace Cologne from the top spot as the most populous city in the empire. Depopulating a city would have severely damaged Anno's uh, position in the uh, power balance of the empire. So with a sober view, it would also have made no sense at all to call the city depopulated. Why? Well, We'll take a look at that in a moment, once we get into the analysis of who exactly was really involved in the uprising of 1074 in the first place. I find interesting, uh, as a side note, the aspect that Lampert, even here in the late 11th century, still applies the Roman view of the world, the division between Germanic and Gallic world in Europe itself, uh, divided by the Rhine River in West and East. He calls Cologne a Gallic city, as you just heard. The same goes for Mainz, because both cities lie, at least at that time, on the left side of the Rhine alone. Thus, according to Roman understanding, those two cities are Gallic, while everything on the right bank of the Rhine would be Germanic, just as Caesar summed up 1100 years ago in his work on the Gallic War a work which was certainly extremely well known to the clergyman Lampert as a scholar. 
After all the events of April 1074, let's take a look at a more analytical level. Why had the rebellion actually broken out? The seizure of a single merchant ship could hardly be the cause. Surely there were other reasons. And why did the uprising collapse again so miserably? All this after a pause for breath. What happened to Anno in 1074 is actually a great example of how the exercise of power was understood at that time. When the angry mob invaded the grounds of Cologne Cathedral and put an extremely rude end to Anno's dinner, I used to ask myself, why hadn't the city guard intervened? Why hadn't they fought back and nipped the riot out in the butt? Well, fun fact, the famous city guards, who always appears in movies, books or PC games with spears or, or, or big uh, swords, hang around at entrances or palaces, simply did not exist in high medieval Europe. There were no city guards, no police, and no standing armies that could have rushed to the aid of the city lord at that moment. This did not only exist in Cologne at that time, but actually not in whole medieval Europe. As I said, the uprising of 1074 shows in a beautiful, vivid way how the exercise of power was understood. Anno II had many officials who helped him to administer the city, you know, city bailiff, uh, the Burggraf, uh, as mentioned before, and other servants. After all, he was not only responsible for the city of Cologne alone as an imperial prince and archbishop, but over a widely scattered area in the northern Rhineland, such as Neuss, for example, that we learned of. Still compared to today, when alone 22,000 people work directly for the city of Cologne to keep a city of 1.1 million people running, and that doesn't even include the police, firefighters and public transportation personnel, we are a long way from that in the 11th century. Not only in Cologne, but everywhere in Western Europe. With the exception of the Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean, which as a remnant of the Eastern Roman Empire still had a big civil service. Thus, we see that the Cologne city bailiff probably only had a few servants at his disposal to be able to react to unrest in the city at short notice. How else can we explain that a few half-strong merchant boys managed to put the city bailiff and his men to flight, which triggered the uprising of 1074? Interestingly, we learn nothing in Lampert's report about the role of the Burggraf, the archbishop's deputy who presided over the court for him in the city, already described here in the podcast in a previous episode. He, the Burggraf, is totally missing from the events here on site. And I have no idea why. Rule in this period is not based on constitutions, bureaucracies and officialdom, but on personal interrelationships. Anno, as the supreme ruler of the city, had, according to his own understanding, a relationship with every single person in this city. So not in the sense of candlelight and romances and going out for dinner once in a while, but in the exercise and maintenance of law and order. The same applied, of course, to all other regions in which the Archbishop Brick of Cologne exercised secular power. This is also clear in Lampert's report, 
where he wrote down how important the restoration of this relationship was to Anno. So important that Anno made the man that he just punished severely with uh, physical force swear an oath to it. Let's see Lampert in this case again. Quote, All were fined heavy sums of money and had to take an oath that in the future they would defend the city as best they could in word and deed for the archbishop against everyone's violence and that they would always regard the citizens who had fled the city as their worst enemies until they had given due satisfaction to the archbishop. End quote. This system of personal interactions between rulers and subjects cannot be depicted more clearly here. What laws and the rule of law regulate today, this named system was in this time. For example, if a crime happened in the city in everyday life, like pickpocketing or something, then the police didn't come because they didn't exist. No, it was expected that every person in the vicinity would do his best to maintain law and order in the spirit of the archbishop. This meant arresting the thief and bringing him to city bailiff or to Anno directly in the palace at the cathedral, so that the thief could be judged there directly. This system worked well. So well, in fact, that Anno did not even maintain a kind of bodyguard, a large force of bodyguards in reserve, as we learned. This was the case until well into the early modern period in Europe. Therefore, it was never necessary to think up something like a police force or city guard. Until industrialization, cities in Europe remained manageable in terms of population, usually only a few thousands to ten thousands of inhabitants. Only when cities grew enormously in a short time in the course of industrialization and anonymity arose within the urban centers as a result did this change. Cities in the Middle Ages and the early modern period were actually like large villages. People knew each other. Hmm, that actually sounds just like Cologne still is today. Of course, this system was not always perfect, which system is, and this is very clearly shown in this uprising of 1074. For Anno's modest armed forces could neither win a harbor brawl nor win against a few half-strong merchants, nor had they managed to effectively defend against the insurgents the area around Cologne Cathedral, which in the meantime had been extended to resemble an area that looked like a castle and thus was actually an ideal area to defend, but they did not manage to do that. Especially in the case of uprisings or external dangers, such as the one in Cologne in 1074, the system could falter in the short term. This way of exercising power was often slow in reacting to unforeseen dangers, but, as we have seen, in the end, it proved to be effective. Anno was chased out of the city, no question, but when he again asked for help from his now rural subjects, who were right in the city's hinterland, this system did not fail at all. On the contrary, within three days, Anno had gathered a decent force that allowed him to intimidate the insurgents into surrendering immediately. I hardly believe that our city mayor could motivate us Cologne citizens like that nowadays. But well, we also live in a different time with different ideas of what a state should look like, 
pay taxes for it, etc. Stupid comparison by my side. But here too, it became apparent that the spirits that were called were not always easy to control. Anno was able to quickly mobilize the rural population for his march on Cologne, but once the genie was out of the bottle, it could be difficult to get it back in. Here too, uh, a good sense of how to deal with things was required. And this is also reported by Lampert when he describes how Anno had to appease the men from the countryside not to burn down the whole of Cologne when he came back to the city. Quote, Fearing that after the surrender of the city, the enraged travelers could hardly be restrained from acts of violence and would rage all too badly against the people, partly out of bitterness for the wrong done and partly out of greed for booty, he urged the country people who were there with him to all go home in peace. Their previous services were sufficient, and he had received clear proof of the sentiments of the sheep against the shepherd, of the sons against the father. The most difficult part of the enterprise had been accomplished, thanks to their great bravery. What remained could now easily be done by his own household troops. They should therefore go home with his blessing and take with them the hope that his gratitude for this faithful service, whether he lived or died, would always remain. After he had with difficulty enforced their departure, and quote, because here I would break off the last sentence in the middle, since the following no longer contributes to this topic. But I found it important to include that Lampert wrote that Arno had trouble and difficulties sending the rural population home. For Arno's goal was the reconquest of Cologne and, of course, the punishment of the insurgents. But the destruction of the whole city was, of course, not in his mind. Anno's quick return to Cologne was not only based on the strength of his summoned troops, it had also had something to do with who had actually fought against Anno in Cologne in those late April days of the year 1074, and even more interesting, who had not done so in the city of Cologne. Exactly in these questions lies, however, the answer why the uprising of 1074, so bloody and rapid it had begun, was also so fast again passed. Although this cannot be fully and completely reconstructed, but at least we can try. Who exactly rebelled in Cologne in 1074? If you read popular science texts or even the articles on the internet about it, you always see about the citizens of Cologne who dared to revolt. I, on the other hand, have often led it at simply talking about the unknown merchant's son and his followers or simply the rebels or the insurgents. What is certain is that at the beginning, the merchant and his son, who are not mentioned by name in the sources, are clearly mentioned as having dared to revolt. We also learned in the last podcast episode that Lampert portrays the insurgents as effeminate, as having, quote, grown up from youth in the pleasures of city life, end quote. That doesn't sound like people revolting that were peasants, day laborers, or farmhands, or backmakers who dare to revolt here. People who could 
indeed grow up from youth in the pleasures of city life. Roughly speaking, there were only two groups in Cologne at that time who fit this description. First of all, of course, the high clergy and the service apparatus of the archbishop with his ministerial staff. But come on, they hardly rebelled against the existing establishment. And that leaves only the second group. This was the up-and-coming merchant class in Cologne. Who else had the human resources to gather people quickly and above all in just one day, and storm the bishop's palace and Cologne Cathedral itself with them? Of course, not only merchants participated in the uprising. People were in any dependence with the merchant class, people were also involved. The merchants' servants and day laborers certainly who worked in the houses and workplaces of the merchants. People who somehow themselves had a grudge against Anno for whatever reason. Their number must therefore not have been small. After all, they managed to drive Anno into flight. But one thing is certain. An uprising of all the people of Cologne against Anno, as it is often portrayed in public, did not take place in 1074. We can therefore assume that it was especially the wealthy merchants and their supporters who dared to revolt. Undoubtedly, important people in the city. In absolute numbers, however, they represented a minority within the city's society. Even though most people in Cologne probably couldn't stand Anno, most probably didn't become active in this, nor did they support the rebellious merchants actively. Why? What would have come out for an uninvolved person in the city personally, like a day laborer who had nothing to do with this merchant class? Why should he rebel against someone to replace a rule by one mighty person for another wealthy, mighty class? It makes no sense. The question is, therefore, what was the goal of those insurgents, these uh, elite group of merchants? First, of course, the obvious, the end of Anno city rule, and even if that means that they kill him when they try to storm Cologne Cathedral. Even if Lampert sees the insurgents in league with the devil, this was a purely political conflict, not an uprising against the Christian faith or against the institution of the church itself. No, all those rebels were faithful Christians, but they were just unsatisfied with how their city ruler acted. That he was also the archbishop, a priest, that's just, oh, it's not a coincidence, of course it's not, but as I said, the act against him was in spite of him being, a, in their eyes, terrible secular ruler of the city. This is also evident in the days following Anno's expulsion. The rebellious people of Cologne sent messengers to Henry IV to ask him to abolish the archbishop's rule of the city and replace it with his, Henry's, own royal rule. After all, Henry IV was considered the liege lord of Anno II, acting on his behalf as his local representative in Cologne. The city of Worms, <laughs> I know a funny name in English, which had successfully driven out its own bishop and city ruler a year earlier, naturally served as a model for the insurgents. This kicking out of local rulers was a trend heard throughout Europe at that time. With the emergence and flourishing of the cities in the high middle ages in Europe, the wealthy craftsmen and merchants there promised themselves more autonomy over their own city by shaking off the local and regional secular and ecclesiastical nobility. As a goal, 
there. They therefore sought direct rule in the city by the king. Oh, wait a minute, uh, you might say. But that's not greater freedom when the king rules in the city. Yes, it is. Because that meant that you also enjoyed more freedoms as a city dweller. Because a king or emperor was on the move all the time in many different places in the empire and throughout Europe. And hey. And think with me here for a minute. This is quite practical. So unlike a local noble like Anno with permanent residence in the city, a king could not intervene so much locally in the daily life of the city and annoy the rule of the rich citizens because, like I said, a king was always um, on the move somewhere else. However, the goal to replace Anno's or the archbishop's rule of the city by the rule of a king did not happen in 1074 because Anno managed to put down the uprising within a few days, long before the messengers arrived at the king's court. This leads us to the question that is still clearly in the air here. Why did the insurgents surrender so quickly when Anno returned? The insurgents had obtained an entire city with a mighty city wall within just one single night. Until the invention of artillery, large fortified cities like Cologne were virtually impregnable, unless you managed to effectively starve them out, but even that would have taken months, perhaps years, with many casualties on your own side as well, if you were the one that was besieging someone. Cologne is a good example of this. Between the year 881 and 1794, no enemy army was supposed to be able to conquer Cologne for a whole 913 years. Who really rebelled here? The answer we have already given ourselves indirectly in this episode. It was probably not the entire city population that supported and actively carried out this uprising. A small wealthy class of merchants with their servants and farmhands was in charge here now for those few days that Anna was gone. That size of this group had been quite enough to take the archbishop by surprise and chase him away, and perhaps man the city gates. But to defend the city against a siege and a possible attack, they were probably not able to do so, the merchants and their servants. There was also the question of whether everyone in the city was really willing to share the negative effects of a siege and to die for some merchants that had some uh, elite problems with their liege lord. And this is evident in Lampert's report. The insurgents see Anno's army, which include not only numerous peasants, but also knights and armed mercenaries. They, the insurgents, could not do anything against this in the long run. Then rather hope for repentance and forgiveness. A much too complicated, albeit important issue is the question of the creation of a municipality in 1074. What does that mean exactly? Well, in other words, to what extent can we already speak here of an independently thinking urban society where the citizens, you know, form kind of self-governing elements? It is absolutely tempting to do so uh, here in order to place Cologne at the European spearhead, so to speak, of this so-called municipal development, which was gaining more and more momentum, especially in Italy and France. 
But my absolute personal opinion on this, I think that this is not yet quite clear here. The fact that people joined together here in 1074 for a common political voice is, well, quite evident. Yeah, the merchants did. Many, many of the merchant class did it, many, maybe not all of the merchant class. But that is still clearly in its infancy here. Unfortunately, we know far too little about the organized nature of Cologne's wealthy class of inhabitants for this time of uh, Cologne's history. Fortunately, this, and I am looking forward to this, will become more and more apparent in the near future. But the seeds had been sown for the goals of the 1074 insurgents, autonomy and shaking off the rule of the archbishop, were to remain the agenda of the wealthy people of Cologne for the centuries to come. Henry IV, whom the rebels asked for help in the days of Anno's escape, could not really do much either. Although he had specifically cancelled the war campaign planned for that year just to look, hey, what's going on in Cologne. In Andernach, 19 kilometers south of Cologne on the Rhine near Koblenz, Henry confronted the Archbishop of Cologne on June 12, 1074, so just a few months after all this happened. Henry even accused Anno of treason because of his actions and the rumor that was spreading throughout the empire that Anno wanted to conquer even Aachen together with an army of the English King William I, yes, that William the Conqueror. Anno is always skillful and certainly with good excuses as well tangible political resources got away with an oath and was thereupon acquitted by Henry IV on the charges. At this point, Henry's own rule over the empire was in too much trouble. He needed Anno as an ally. Despite the now really extremely <laughs> turbulent history that the two men had with each other, you know, the coup of Kaiserswerth, remember a few episodes back? Anno, as a former regent and as a powerful imperial prince in the west of the empire, had the upper hand here. Of course, Henry also wanted to hear the other side, and immediately after the meeting with Anno in Andernach, he also traveled to Cologne to hear, hey folks, what happened here exactly? There, in Cologne, Henry held court, which he as a king could of course do anywhere in his empire. There, Henry demanded that the people of Cologne present him with evidence that clearly would show that Anno himself had provoked the uprising and not the other way around. But here, too, Anno prevailed. Too many weeks had passed since the April events. The insurgents had already been punished, dishonored, or even fled the city, and above all, everywhere else in Anno's domain, the Archbishop of Cologne continued to enjoy unrestricted and great support from his subjects. Again, this shows what I have tried to explain elsewhere in this episode. On paper, Anno really had little power. He had no police force, no secret service, no standing army, no great repressive apparatus like uh, total totalitarian uh, uh, government has nowadays. And uh, how could he? Like all medieval rulers of that era, Anno knew how to convince through personal relationships and sheer charisma of himself. In this way, now how the events turned out. Anno had won. 
he had not only survived the uprising, he had survived it also politically. But at what price? Anno died one and a half years later. On December 4th, 1075, death knocked at Anno's door. This short time would not actually be enough to make one forget all that happened in the city one and a half years before. And not only that, Anno had been ailing the whole year of 1075, being already in his late 60s. Lampert describes this quite in detail. Let's hear him once again. Quote, At last, Satan also obtained power over his flesh, and he was struck with an evil ulcer on both feet, so that gradually the rotting flesh festered out, and after the skin had peeled off in various places, the naked bones, hideous to look at, emerged. This disease first ate away the feet, then in a terrible form the lower thighs, and then, after long agonies, spread to the vital organs, and at last sent the soul, more than silver we find in the fire sevenfold, tried and purified from this tabernacle of dust over to the house, not made with hands, which is eternal in the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Almost exactly a year after the uprising against him and half year before his death in December 1075, Anno had had a strange dream according to Lampert. He, Anno, was dressed all in white in a room. In the room were other important bishops, already dead, like, like archbishops of Mainz, Trier and Cologne were among them, such as Heribert, the founder of Deutz Abbey. They all sat on chairs, dressed in white clothes as well. Anno saw that one chair was still free. Great, he thought to himself, and wanted to sit down on it. But as he walked toward the chair, he noticed a dirty, dark stain on his white robe. The bishops all stood up and said that he, Anno, would not be allowed to join this illustrious group until he got rid of the stain on his robe. Horrified, Anno woke up from this dream, this nightmare. And it's interesting how Anno interpreted that dream. He immediately sent out messengers in all directions of the empire that he would now also, one year later, forgive the fugitive merchants of Cologne who had so far escaped his punishment and had previously left the city in 1074. Furthermore, he lifted all the church ban and returned all confiscated assets that the merchants had lost in the aftermath of the uh, rebellion. And surprise, surprise, with this act, Lampert uh, clo closes his narrative with that uh, from now on, the city was no longer desolate, but flourished again. When Anno died on December 4th, 1075, his body was led through all the churches of Cologne in a procession for three days afterwards. Even if Anno had even forgiven the escaped merchants who had participated in the uprising, he had probably not quite um, found the love for the city again, <laughs> to put it that way. With his funeral, Anno broke with a largely established tradition. He, 
did not have himself buried in the cathedral, not even in the city of Cologne, but in Siegburg. He was buried in the today's town of Siegburg, in the monastery that he had founded after wresting the former fortress from the Zonitz during the first years of his reign as Archbishop of Cologne. Since then, Anno rests on top of this hill in Siegburg, and you can visit him there. Around a hundred years after his death, in 1183, Anno was even canonized. That's really interesting, I think. None other than the goldsmith Nicholas of Vidal created a beautifully crafted shrine for the now uh, holy Anno. This is the same gentleman, by the way, who designed and built the shrine of the three uh, holy kings in Cologne Cathedral that is uh, the attraction in the Cologne Cathedral nowadays. You can see the high medieval Anno shrine from 1183 in Siegburg in the parish church of St. Servatius, so not in the monastery church up on top of that hill. The parish church is at the foot of the mountain. There is a small but really fine and well-equipped treasury. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. By the way, the entrance is free, but donations, of course, are welcome there. I had in the summer vacations there a great, spontaneous, private tour because the nice supervisor there really explained everything to me. He was not just a guy that looked at nobody steals something. No, he really knew everything about the stuff that was stored in there. That was really great. And thanks again. And sorry, I forgot your name. And maybe you don't want to be called out publicly. <laughs> as well. I have no idea. The Anno Shrine there, the high medieval Anno Shrine, is there among many other artifacts such as robes, bishop stars, reliquary vessels, etc. Unfortunately, this high medieval Anno Shrine is no longer in very good condition. In the course of secularization, much of the figural decoration was stolen. Fortunately, there is a detailed drawing there on site which showed how the shrine once looked like, and I will put that, of course, on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. I think, personally, it is interesting how Anno is viewed in different places nowadays. In the history of Cologne, people tend to emphasize the negative aspects of Anno that the revolt against him was the beginning of the city's long road to becoming a free imperial city, that Anno was a dictator and it was right to push him out of the city. Interestingly, the Archbishopric of Cologne nowadays has a rather neutral attitude here. One of Anno's successors, 900 years later, the Archbishop of Cologne, Josef Cardinal Höfner, spoke in 1975, so 50 years ago, quote, Anno was often unrestrained, fierce, uncomfortable, and unbending, not infrequently to the point of stubbornness. He was a man full of tensions and contradictions. End quote. I think that is really interesting that they have such a, that this Archbishop of Cologne had such a view on Anno and not just said that, oh, he's holy, holy, holy. No. It's, it's interesting how he um, put, it, put it in words, how he saw Anno. And in Siegburg, that was my personal impression, the picture about Anno is quite positive. And who can blame them for that? Here people are grateful to the man who gave the town of Siegburg the impetus to become a significant place in the first place. 
And so it was decided only in recent years that the shrine from the High Middle Ages, which had irrevocably lost large parts of its decoration, was no longer sufficient to do justice to Anno's memory and legacy. In 2015, the Archdiocese of Cologne announced an art competition to redesign the tomb at Anno's shrine in Siegburg Abbey. And I've seen the final product. I think it was um, finished in 2021. So if you disagree here with me, okay, it's okay, it's your opinion. But I was blown away when I saw what American artist Brody Neuenschwander had created. When you enter the Abbey Church and immediately go to the right through a passageway, you enter an almost dark room. In the center is Anno's new shrine. At first glance in the form of a transparent house. But when you step closer, you see that the outer shell of the house simply times an entire biography in text form. A house of letters, so to speak. In the middle of this house of letters floats a suspended golden box in which the bones of Anno are inside. The shrine stands, as I said, in a dark room, and from the ceiling a single concentrated golden light falls directly into the center of this shrine house. Because of the metal surface, this causes the light to shine faintly but clearly through the dark room. I found it very impressive, and of course, I will put some photos about it on social media and in the companion post, in the blog post of this episode, but um, in reality, the imagery is even more stunning. I can tell you that. But if you ever have the chance, visit the two places in Siegburg, the Abbey Church and the Parish Church with the Treasury. Siegburg, the town, is fortunately not very big and as I said, both places are located next to each other, uh, very close to each other. That was the second part of the rebellion against Anno in 1074, a key element in Cologne's history, or later on they made it to a key event in Cologne's history. I really enjoyed it a lot. Really, I was looking forward to this story when I began with the podcast, after all. But you guys realize... If you listen closely to last episode, some things I promised came up short and were barely addressed, if at all. Like the peace movement or the investiture controversy. I'll have to make up for that elsewhere. The book by Karl Dietmann, Hugo Stehkamp on High Medieval Cologne, as part of the Cologne City History series, was extremely helpful. I proceeded in such a way that I first used only Lampert's original text, and when I was finished with it, I incorporated the analysis of um, Karl Dietmann Hugo Stehkamper. I know the episode is now much longer than usual, but as important as other medieval archbishops were like Bruno or Heribert, Anno is still comparatively well known in Cologne's urban society today. The historical novel called Anno 1074 also plays a part in this. This book follows quite uh, stringently Lampert's narrative. And Anno himself is also portrayed quite versatilely here, as a power-conscious imperial prince, yes, but also driven as a prisoner of his own deep piety, which eventually leads him into the abyss. 
The book seems to have been quite successful, I believe, because um, shortly after he wrote a second uh, book about it. I still have them both somewhere on my bookshelf. I was still in elementary school when I read them. I should read them again sometime. Of course, Anno can also be found as a figure on the tower of the historic city hall of Cologne. In his right hand, Anno holds not only the crozier but also a sword. This indicates that Anno also acted as a secular ruler and temporary regent of the whole empire. Well, this is certainly now, I believe, the longest episode I've ever done. There would be certainly still so much to tell about Anno's life. I could still read to you the Song of Anno, a text written in 1081 AD with 49 verses in early Middle High German, but we better leave that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said, I was really looking forward to Anno's 19 year tenure as Archbishop of Cologne. We have so many events in a short time for an otherwise uh, period that lacks historical sources that had to be cannibalized. This was a very narrow time focus that we've chosen. Time to take a broader look again next time on developments in the 11th century in general. And no, this time I won't give away too much but just let you surprise what might come. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app. Feel free to give ratings where possible, like on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to my newest Patreon member, Antje, for your extra support in helping me keep my production costs from getting out of hand. Thank you so much. So feel free to recommend me to others. Thanks for listening and Auf Wiedersehen.